Good morning. This is lesson 15 in our study of the Gospel of Mark, and I've titled this, The Most Important Question in the World. I was tempted. I actually had it in my notes, and I erased it, to have a second title, which was Peter's Not-So-Great Confession. If you think about the confession that Peter makes, it's a wonderful thing as far as it goes, but it obviously does not go far enough. And so I'm reminded like of the triumphal entry of our Lord where he comes into Jerusalem and is heralded with all this joy and whatever. You know how it goes by the end of the week. Not such a triumphal entry at all in the light of what comes. Questions are important and powerful, and you see that throughout the Bible. You remember that the fall began with a question, hath God said? And on we go. And God's response to that was in a threefold question. He said to Adam, where are you? And then he said, who told you that you were naked? And then said to Eve, what is this? that you have done. One of the great series of questions that you find, and I've just picked one of those, is from the book of Job. Job was getting a little uppity. He had his hands on his hips. He was uh, letting God know that he had several things that he needed to get straight with him. And God begins with this question. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Oops, there's a question that's powerful. Or in Romans chapter 9, who are you, old man, who answers back to God? And you remember that it was with questions that the Jewish religious authorities sought to challenge Jesus and discredit him. One of the questions was, by what authority? And then they would go on with their uh, question. And there were those, that threefold set of questions asked to Peter in John chapter 21. Peter, do you love me? Powerful, powerful words. But I have to say, my favorite question in all the Bible comes from 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 14. Saul has been ordered to slaughter the Amalekites and all of their cattle. And uh, he lets the king of the Amalekites live, Agag, and he saves the best of the cattle, he says, so that he can offer them as sacrifices. But initially, Saul says to the Lord, I have done exactly as you ordered. To which Samuel says, what is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear? Don't you just love that question? Uh, Yeah, there is something... Fundamentally wrong, I think, when you hear the sheep bleat, the sheep that were supposedly dead. All right, this is in the midst of a section that I have called Connecting the Dots. And that comes from chapter 6 and verse 30 with the feeding of the 5,000 through our text in chapter 8 and, and verse 21 at least. And there our Lord Jesus has been saying to his disciples that it is important and mandatory for them to read between the lines and connect the dots 
and see the relationship between the things that our Lord Jesus has been saying and, and doing. What I would like to suggest to you is that this section which talks about connecting the dots between the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water, and the feeding of the 4,000 is just a miniature and that now this is a warm-up, as it were, and what Jesus wants the disciples to do now is to connect all of the dots, as it were, from Mark chapter 1 to Mark chapter 8. He wants them to see this whole picture. What does all of this mean when you connect the dots? So let's look at some of the dots that we see in uh, chapters 1 through 8. You have the introduction of the gospel by a citation uh, that's said to be from Isaiah. And then you have John the Baptist speaking of one who is going to come, who is who is uh, so much superior to him that he's not even worthy to tie the sandal of his shoes. One greater than John is coming. And then you have the testimony of the Father at the baptism of our Lord Jesus. This is my beloved Son or it really says, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Powerful words of testimony. And then you have the demon's testimony. You know, they keep saying, "You are. we know who you are. You are the Son of God. Jesus persistently silences them, but there is that testimony that we see over and over. And then there are the Lord's statements and actions, which certainly cause us to ask the question, who in the world is this who does and says these things? So he says, uh, he, in chapter 1, verses 21 through 28, Jesus teaches with great authority. Remember, he is casting out demons in the midst of his teachings. So not only does he speak words of teaching, but he underscores that with miraculous acts which shows his power and his authority. And then uh, you have the uh, statement in chapter 2 with the paralytic where Jesus says to the man who was lowered through the roof, your sins are forgiven. Who in the world has the right to make that statement, your sins are forgiven? One more dot to connect. And then in chapter 2, late, uh, you have the questions that are raised about Jesus and his disciples, why they don't fast like John and his disciples and the others, and why his disciples uh, gather grain and, and eat it on, as they're going on their way. And Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Pretty significant statement. The stilling of the storm where the uh, disciples raise the question, who is this? <laughs> that even the winds and the waves obey his voice. The raising of Jairus' daughter. I'm sorry I didn't put that in your notes, but I should have in chapter 5. Uh, here's the raising of a girl who has died. Who can do those kinds of things? Then in chapter 7, Jesus declares all foods clean. He does not simply challenge the interpretation of the Jewish religious leaders, he actually changes the law itself, declaring now all foods to be clean. Who is able to do that uh, and get away with it? Then he feeds the 5,000, then the 4,000, and he walks on water. That's a lot of dots. 
And it seems to me that what Jesus has done in miniature is to raise the connecting the dots with the feeding of the 5,000, walking on the water, feeding of the 4,000. And now he's saying, let's carry that exercise out over all of the chapters that have led up to this point in chapter 8. Where does this take us? So the dilemma of Jesus' identity is a dilemma that everybody faces. You see that in chapter 1, verse 27, he teaches with authority. In chapter 6, verse 15, in the context of Herod trying to figure out who this Jesus is, you remember that it says the crowds were saying he is Elijah the prophet or some other person. They are trying to sort out who it is that Jesus is. The hometown folks at Nazareth in chapter 6 are struggling with the fact that he teaches with great authority. He does all of these miraculous things, but he's a hometown boy. We know this guy. We know his family, his brothers and sisters. How do we put this together? Who is this, this Jesus that we know? It's no dilemma for the demons. Notice the demons never had any agony about figuring out who Jesus was. They knew. The only agony they had was Jesus kept shutting them up because he wouldn't let them say it. Uh, when he was present. The disciples, trying to figure out as they watch him calm the winds and the waves, who is this? Can't you see Peter looking over at his brother Andrew or, or John like this? What is this? Um, they obviously were wondering about this Jesus that they had chosen to follow. Herod, in chapter 6, he has put John the Baptist to death, but Jesus carries on this ministry and the same message. And so his question is, who is Jesus? And his conclusion was, he's John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Uh, the Jewish religious leaders, they had lots of problems to deal with. He forgives sins. He associates with sinners. He breaks their law and, more importantly, their traditions. What do we do with this Jesus? And they finally came to the conclusion, he does what he does through the power of Satan. He is demon-possessed. He is a servant of the devil. So it's now time in our development, in Mark's development of the argument of this text, it's a quiz time for the disciples. What do all these dots mean? How do you connect them? Who is Jesus? And it's the watershed, I think, for the Gospel of Mark, so that when you get to this point in chapter 8, the question that looms large is, who is Jesus? And the answer, of course, is, he is the Messiah. The question which flows from that statement is, what is the work of Messiah? That's where you see Peter and the disciples have a real problem with where this is going to lead when they have made the, the uh, when Peter has made the great confession. All right, all of this takes place at Caesarea Philippi, and so you can uh, take a look uh, at the slides. I confess that I had to exaggerate this map that came out of the ESV, so it's actually fatter, but but the way the paper and the screen lies, I couldn't make it as deep, so it's sort of smushed, and I, I'm, I'm sorry about that, but, but it gives you the general idea. Notice you've got Jesus' ministry uh, at Tyre and Sidon on the Mediterranean uh, coast. That's where he encountered the Canaanite woman, and the discussion of bread took place there. 
And then down at the northern, uh, 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 the top, northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, you have the ministry of our Lord Jesus at Bethsaida. Notice my wonderful artwork there. My shaky hand and my mouth trying to get that line to be straight. But you see him uh, there healing the blind man in that two-stage healing at Bethsaida. And then you see the movement north up to Caesarea Philippi. And take note just above that, that you have Mount Hermon there. So if you look at the next slide, you'll see uh, the uh, northern place. This is near Bethsaida. I don't know exactly how distant it is. This is where the, the Jordan River flows into the, the Sea of Galilee on the northern end of the sea. And then, of course, it flows out of the Sea of Galilee on the southern end uh, of the sea and ends up, of course, down in, in the Dead Sea ultimately. But if you were to look straight up or north from that entry, you would see, as you see in the next slide, uh, Mount Hermon, off in the distance, distance uh, sometimes snow there, and it becomes the watershed, as it were, for uh, the Jordan River and therefore uh, for the Sea of Galilee uh, as well. So when you head in that direction, you'll notice it says 38 miles. You would come to this place where there's a cave, and uh, it. let's see if we can see it. See, it's just... A, uh, sort of in the center toward the left. There's a cave that used to be the source of this uh, river that, that flowed out that was one of the main tributaries for the Jordan. An earthquake actually changed that. But this whole area now has be, had become in history a place for pagan worship. Uh, Canaanite worship took place there, and then the worship of Greek gods uh, took place there. So this is a real pagan center, uh, if you would, uh, that that is there. And you see the next slide is, again, the water that proceeds, that becomes the headwaters of the uh, Jordan River. So the, the, the Great Confession is taking place in a fairly removed uh, area, this is a Jewish area, not a, not a primarily Gentile area, but it is it is fairly removed and and distant. Uh, why does it happen here? In fact, you'll only find Caesarea Philippi in the Gospels in Matthew and Mark at this point of the Great Confession, and then you'll see it again occurring in the Book of Acts. Why here? I would guess, one, because it is remote. And Jesus has things to say to his disciples that he probably does not want to say publicly yet, although there will be crowds there. All right, this is a little horsey, and it's probably connecting dots that don't exist. But this is the headwaters of the Jordan River. Isn't it interesting, in a sense, that everything that flows out of this place becomes so significant as you go down uh, south, uh, more into the, the, the Sea of Galilee and the whole area of Israel. Isn't the Great Confession, the headwaters, as it were, the headwaters of what the gospel is really all about? This is where it begins and flows out of that. Perhaps that has something to do with it, although you may well disagree with me on that point. Notice in, in, the, in the question that Jesus raises with the disciples, he doesn't ask what the Jewish religious leaders believe. What do your leaders believe about me? No, we're not going to go down that trail. 
We know already what they believe, and that isn't really worth discussion. The question is, what do the people believe about me? Doesn't ask about what the demons have said either. Uh, We know what the demons have said, but he does not go there. What do the people have to say about me? What is their judgment concerning who I am? And, of course, it is Peter who answers, you are the Christ. Note note these things, uh, these observations about the suggestions that are given from the people, which are pretty consistent with Matthew and Luke as well, as well as the earlier part of Mark in chapter 6, where the people are struggling with the identity of Jesus. All of the people viewed the identity of Jesus in light of the Old Testament scriptures. Everybody was thinking biblically about that. I was thinking, oh, those were the good old days. Now, if you ask somebody the question, who is Jesus? They're probably inclined to say, many of them, I have no idea. Who is he? Or you may hear the, 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 you know, the intellectual, the scholarly analysis, and it has nothing to do with scripture. It has everything to do with supposition and whatever. You gotta give these people credit. At least they are thinking in biblical terms, right? That's not bad. And notice that they all consider Jesus to be some kind of prophet. John the Baptist, Elijah, or Jeremiah in one case, or, or in one of the prophets. So they're all thinking in prophet terms. And you remember, of course, the, the, the promise in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that God will raise up a prophet like Moses who is going to speak and people ought to hear. So they are thinking in prophetic terms. Now, here's, here's one. I'm not sure. You, you, this is where I see the issue coming to a head with respect to Peter and everybody regarding the identity of Jesus. What rubs people the wrong way about Jesus and what he says about what it means to be Messiah, as he's going to say in just a few moments about uh, rejection, suffering, death, so on. All of the prophets that are named are prophets who speak doom and gloom. John the Baptist. What does John the Baptist say? Oh, man, you guys better get ready because Jesus is coming. I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with fire. You know, and you, <laughs> you almost hear somebody out there saying, Give him hell, John! He is! He is! Is he not? He's talking about the coming wrath of God. Is it any wonder that when John sits in his prison cell and he hears what Jesus is doing and teaching, that he says to Jesus through his messengers, Did I get this right? Because John is thinking that Jesus is going to come in this judgment mode. He's going to clean house. The text that we're, uh, that, that we saw in Isaiah chapter 11, talking about justice that was in our bulletin for this morning's worship time, Jeremiah chapter 33, when you look at those texts, friends, they are justice texts. They are saying, when Messiah comes, he's cleaning house. So that's the mindset that people have when they see Jesus and they hear his teaching. They're saying, 
All right, when is it going to be that he's going to kick Rome out? He's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to judge the Je- our enemies, especially the Gentiles. He's going to clean house. And Jesus instead says to his disciples, actually, I'm going to be rejected and die. Whoa, wait a minute. So when you look at the, the, the people that are named uh, as as uh, uh, identity, uh, identities of our Lord Jesus. They're all people who spoke of coming wrath, not of a coming Messiah who would suffer and die. All of the candidates, I, I put except Elijah, it depends on whether you want to say Elijah died or not, but, but these people who might come back, like John the Baptist or whatever, they have to be resurrected to do it, don't they? So all of these people, whoever they are, I'm saying, these people who are saying this are thinking biblically, they're thinking prophetically, and they're even thinking in terms of resurrection. (laughs) They haven't gotten there yet, but they're at least, you might say, on the right track in many ways. All right. But none apparently regarded Jesus as the Messiah or as God. So... Peter's confession is, you are the Christ. The the word there is the anointed one, and it is used pretty consistently of the one who is anointed as king, in other words, the one who will sit on the throne of David. You are Israel's promised coming king. And you're the one, therefore, who's going to come and judge our enemies. You're going to release us from captivity and establish your throne. I'm not sure that I see in this a clear profession or confession of the deity of Christ from Peter. Now, I know he just says, you are the Christ here. I know that it says, you are the Son of God. But, in Messianic terms, if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, to be the Son, remember he says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. To be the son of God meant he is the one who is designated to reign on the throne. I'm not sure that that in their minds or in Peter's mind is a clear declaration. You are God. Not sure of it. And folks, you got to understand This is something that is dawning on these guys over a period of time. We've been reading the scriptures, looking back, whatever, and we may shake our heads. This is, this is serious stuff. Serious implication and a lot of dots to consider. There is no indication in my, so far as I read, that Peter is speaking for the other eleven. And I say that based on Matthew 16. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. He doesn't say, blessed are all of you. I know Simon is speaking for you. He pronounces a particular blessing on Peter for what he has said. Now, it may well be that Peter's confession was the turning on of the light, and the others are saying to themselves, oh yeah, right. That may have been their moment of revelation, but I don't know that he is speaking for them at the moment that he gives that great confession. So what we would say, what I would say is, it was a great response 
it was not the greatest confession of all time because we're going to look at Peter's response to what Jesus says in a minute, and that certainly falls short of the ideal. But it's a good start, and I think that's the way our Lord Jesus uh, indicates it. That's why I asked Leonard to start our reading at verse 22 with that two-stage healing of the blind man, because it seems to me that Peter sees, but he sees like, you know, men are like trees walking. He doesn't see it crystal clear. He's beginning to see what it is that Jesus is all about and who he is and ultimately his work to come. So Jesus' response to uh, Peter's confession uh, we see uh, in verses 30 through 32 uh, a, notice it does not contain the blessing of Peter that we find only in Matthew chapter 16. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, so on. Flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my father, not there. Jesus warns the disciples not to make this public. Isn't that interesting? The greatest truth of all time, and he says to the disciples, don't tell anybody. Why? With their level of understanding, I wouldn't want them teaching it either. Would you? I mean, their understanding of what it meant for Jesus to be Messiah, scary. So he wants them silent because they haven't got a clue yet what it means. And secondly, in that world of messianic enthusiasm, John chapter 6, they want to make him king by force. Matthew 11 makes a similar statement. It would fuel enthusiasm, but of the wrong kind. He is not trying to fuel a revolution. So he asks them, he commands them to be silent about what they have now heard. And he begins to teach. Notice this is a turning point. It's now Jesus begins to teach about his rejection, suffering, death, and resurrection. We haven't seen it before in, in the Gospel of Matthew. You may see in, in, say, the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, destroy this, this, this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The reality is nobody figured out what that meant. Not then. They understood later. It's not until the great confession that Jesus moves to what we might call stage two of his revelation of himself as the Messiah of Israel. Now he does that. He begins to teach. And notice uh, Mark's gospel says openly. And, and even perhaps confidently and boldly in the sense that this now is a prominent part of what he's saying. And, and I would say mainly to his disciples, although he will deal in principle uh, terms with the larger crowd as we'll see in a moment. And so he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the Jewish religious leaders. He must be killed, and he must rise from the dead after three days. That Those words went over the heads of the disciples. Would you agree? It was, I don't know, it was just like they didn't even hear it. Now, I know Peter heard it for a moment, but he's going to set that aside. And it's like when he takes Jesus aside, it's like, and don't you ever bring this up again. 
We don't want to hear this. So, Jesus' response to Peter's uh, uh, rebuke that we see. Oh, let me just say a couple things about Peter's rebuke. One, he took Jesus aside. Now, the way I understand that is when somebody takes somebody else aside, the one who takes aside is the one who's the leader. The one who's taken aside is the follower. Would you not agree? I used to teach school. And every once in a while, I took somebody aside. And there really wasn't a whole lot of question that um, who was leading and who was following. It, it was pretty clear. Peter here has aggressively taken the leadership by taking Jesus aside. And it's clear, is it not, to straighten him out. Jesus needs fixing. And Peter's the man to do it in his mind. He begins to rebuke Jesus. That's because he now is beginning to get the message about what Jesus is about. And the reality is Peter opposes the saving work of Christ. Do we not all agree about that? Peter opposes the atoning work of Christ to save men from their sins. That's what his, what his rebuke is all about. So when we get to verse... Uh, 33, uh, Jesus has some words to say to Peter. Notice it says he turned and he looked at his disciples. Have you ever seen that? You know, it's, it's kind of like when I was teaching school and I, and finally I had to take a kid out in the hall and, and, you know, the rest of the class, they were riveted. They were trying to see out that glass door. They're trying to listen for the sounds that are going to come soon from my nicely drilled and milled paddle that I used in those days. And they're really intent. Can't you see as Peter grabs Jesus, as it were, by the arm, takes him off to the side, those disciples' ears are just flapping. They just want to hear what's going on. And so Jesus realizes that what he must do is speak to Peter in a way that everybody hears what's going on. This is not a private conversation. And so he looks at his disciples, and, and part of that is, now you, you can really press me on this and, and say I'm, I'm going too far out on that limb. When he looks at his disciples, one of the ways in which you hear somebody is if they are facing you and speaking in your direction. Is that not right? So when Jesus turns, sees the disciples, and speaks their way, in my opinion, it's very clear he's talking to Peter and to them uh, when he comes forth with his rebuke. Pardon me on point B. Jesus rebukes Peter so that his disciples will hear and learn. And he says to him, get behind me. I confess to you, I've never really thought about that too much. What do you think it means to get behind somebody? Well, I'll tell you what, the expression is the same expression that Jesus uses in Matthew and Mark for follow me. When Jesus calls his disciples and says, follow me, he's saying, get behind me. Literally, literally. Get behind me. See, Peter was, as it were, in front of Jesus. Peter's taken the lead. Peter's going to straighten Jesus out. And, 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 and it's, I was there painfully at one occasion where somebody said to me, who was an authority greater than mine, 
just who is it that is running this show? Ooh, that hurts. That hurts. And Jesus is saying to Peter, uh, Peter, your place is not at the head of the line. Your place is behind me. I called you to follow me, not lead me, not straighten me out. Get behind me. And he says, Satan, because Satan, the word Satan is the word for adversary. Peter, you are my adversary. Where you stand, you are my adversary. Not only are you standing in front of me, you are working against me. You are saying the things that Satan would say and do. You are his spokesman. So Peter, if you want to do this right, get back where you belong. Behind me. I'm the one who is the leader. You are the one who is to follow. He says, you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. And I want you to see that. What Peter is saying is flat out selfish. Because when the disciples chose to follow Jesus, then it means that they will go wherever he goes. And Jesus has just told them where he's going. To Jerusalem, to rejection, to suffering, and to death. I don't want to go there, Peter says. How do I go there? Well, his resistance to Jesus and to Jesus' words are a resistance to where he does not wish to go. It's a self-serving, self-interested point of view. And so he is resisting our Lord and in effect speaking Satan's words. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus has been privately rebuked by Peter. Jesus, in turning and facing the disciples, has now rebuked Peter in the presence of the twelve. But now, as he has done elsewhere, he calls the crowd. That's the very same thing he did in Mark 7, when you have the Pharisees asking about, why do your disciples eat with unwashed hands and whatever? And Jesus gives the the, the statement, and then he calls the crowds, and he says, you folks need to understand, defilement does not come from without. Defilement comes from within. So Jesus is not content to leave his teaching private. He makes it public. Now, when he summons the crowd, he does not say to them, now you all need to understand what we've just talked about. I asked the disciples who I am. Peter said, I'm the Messiah. And then I told them I'm going to suffer and, and, and be killed and, and be raised from the dead. And, and so I've got some things to say to you based on that. He does not go there. What he does do is to lay out the fundamental principles of what it means to follow Jesus. That's where he's going with his words to the crowd. Following Jesus, Jesus is saying, following me means taking up your cross. Now, you remember that the Jewish method of of execution was stoning. When he says, therefore, take up, you must take up your cross, they immediately think of Rome. That's Rome's way of executing. Therefore, what he said, remember, they're thinking that when Jesus declares himself to be Messiah, he's going to overcome Rome. And what Jesus says is, not only am I going to go and be overcome, so it would appear, by Rome and executed by them, but you will be too. 
You're not going to come in and all of a sudden uh, take political charge of things. You're going to be counter-Rome, and Rome's going to take lives. You're going to follow a cross, he says. Um, he says, one must act contrary to his or her basic instincts and inclination. In other words, if you're going to follow me, your goals are going to change. Because I'm not going the way you're going. I'm not going the way your culture is going. I'm not going the way those people that you've just told me what their view of me is. I'm not going their way. You've got to choose to die to your self-interest, your goals, your ambitions, all of that goes. When you follow me, you follow a path of self-sacrifice and of death. You take up a cross. That's what following me means. That's not popular uh, then. It's not popular today. And he makes the relationship, he establishes a relationship between trying to save your life and being ashamed of Jesus and the gospel. <laughs> Boy, Peter didn't realize how much this was going to hit close to home, did he? When somebody says, you, you, weren't you, uh, you're a Galilean, weren't you one of his followers? Never knew. Never knew. Ashamed of Jesus. Ashamed of the gospel and afraid to die. That's where Jesus is pointing his disciples and the crowds. Okay, here's what I want to say to you about this. It was very interesting, as I years ago listened to Larry Crabb talking about people, and one of the expressions that he would use frequently is, uh, of people is, when I do this, I feel alive. I feel alive. Oh, by the way, almost always it was in the context of sin. <laughs> when I do this thing, I really feel alive. Well, feeling alive, my friend, is not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about taking up your cross and embracing death. Is it not? The death of our Lord Jesus, and if need be, our death physically but it's death to self-interest, death to the flesh, death to the life and ambitions and goals that we have. That's why Ephesians 4 says, when you came to Christ, you came to a whole different way of life. Your life is going to turn upside down if you're following me. I don't care whether it's the Middle Eastern culture, whether it's Asian culture, whether it's African culture or South American culture or U.S. culture. When you come to Christ... He's going to turn your values upside down. And you're going to be counterculture. <laughs> and your ambitions must change. In other words, you must choose to die. Following me means choosing death in one sense. By the way, it's interesting. I'm jumping down to my last point for a minute. But it's interesting that in the Gospel of John, the key word would be believe. In Matthew, it's follow. And I think sometimes we think that we've got a multiple choice and it'll be either be believe or follow. It's both, folks. It's both. Jesus is saying, in effect, what do you believe about me? Now the question is, will you follow me? Get behind me. Get behind me. Will you follow me now that you know what you know about me and my purposes for being here?
Here's one. Once you settle the main question, you've really solved all the others. In other words, once you decide to die, what else can men take, right? If you've settled the big one, especially missionaries that are going into very dangerous and threatening things, they don't every day say, oh, if I do this, what will happen? Because they've already made the decision. I've chosen to follow Christ. I've already died. So all the other issues are settled, aren't they? Why worry about those other things if you're dead? The ambition itself and even physically if it came to that. The real reason men reject Jesus as God's Messiah is because they don't wish to follow him where he goes. You know, there are all kinds of fancy reasons why people say they don't believe in Jesus. But they understand this. Jesus' call is not just to believe, but to follow. And the reason why men say, oh, I've got this problem with Jesus, or I've got that problem with Jesus, is the, they're looking for a reason not to go where he's going. <laughs> if you're going to trust in Christ, you've got to follow him on his path. And that path is the path of the cross. I just happened to think about Rob Bell and the book, Love Wins. And I went out to Amazon and looked, and I must confess, I didn't capture that in a slide for you. But it, it talked about something about the answers to the questions of life. And the way he started it, I read his forward free on Amazon. I read the forward, and, and he basically said, people have all of these questions that, that, that some evangelicals are afraid to ask, but these are questions that we need to deal with. That, that's fine. There, there are questions that need to be dealt with. But i got to tell you what, folks. There's only one question that really needs to be asked and answered. And that is, who do you think Jesus is? That is the question. All of the other questions, you know, they're going to go away. What are my goals in life? Where, how have I done? You know, what have I learned? Forget it. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? If you come to the conclusion that this gospel has been leading you to, and you know we're not at the end yet, then you know that Jesus is the anointed Messiah who has been appointed to die in the place of sinners, and then to be raised, and then to return and establish justice. It was interesting this morning when we were talking in our worship time about justice, and I thought to myself, Jesus not only will bring justice, he fully tasted of justice. See, justice requires that a sinner's sins be atoned for. When Christ died on the cross of Calvary for sinners, he experienced the justice we deserve. Now, is our God a God of love? You bet he is. But that is not all that he is. And the danger, I think, of trying to redefine and reshape Jesus and the gospel is because we don't like the ugly parts. But Jesus experienced the ugly part. How can we minimize that? Every week we celebrate his death. His payment for sin. We celebrate the justice of God that should have been toward us but has been poured out on him. You can't just have a love which is universal 
and somehow doesn't segregate people into those who are going to heaven and those who are going to hell. You can't redefine Jesus. So who do you believe him to be? That is the question. And if you believe him to be God's Messiah, the one who was appointed to rule as well as to die in the place of the sinner, will you follow him? And what this text says is it's not enough just to believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you've chosen a path, and that's a path that we must walk. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the way in which he resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem and toward the fate that you had determined from eternity past for him to die in our place. Father, if there's anyone here in my hearing who has never acknowledged their sin and the judgment it deserves, pray that they would, through the Spirit, be convicted and acknowledge their sin and the judgment which awaits them, and that they might trust in the Lord Jesus and his atoning work of bearing their judgment and his resurrection raising them to newness of life. Father, for those of us who have known the Lord Jesus and trusted him for years, help us not to forget that when we chose to follow him, we chose to take up a cross. Help us to bear our cross. In obedience to the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.